0: This is a Humble Man Recording.
1: Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King.
0: Good afternoon, Courtney.
1: Good afternoon, Hayden.
0: And good afternoon to our first Red Road guest. Yeah. Good afternoon.
2: Dr. Susan Hill. Hi, Courtney and Hayden.
0: Hey! Welcome to Welcome the to, podcast yeah. car.
2: Welcome to the
1: podcast car. <laughs> this is so exciting. We finally have someone here with us to break up the monotony of <laughs> the drive. That's going to be extra long today.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have a long commute today. But yeah. it's sort of funny because Sue some once in a while comes with us on the, mm-hmm. in the podcast car. We're all commuting from the same area. This is...
1: Yeah, so Sue's also from Six Nations, the center of the universe.
0: <laughs> For those who don't know you, Sue, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Um, sure. So I come from Six Nations, like Courtney, and uh, I work at the University of Toronto, and get to spend a lot of time traveling the same road that you guys do in the mm-hmm. podcast car.
0: Mm-hmm. You spend a lot of time on the red road. I do,
2: mm-hmm. usually with some mm-hmm. swearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: We were just talking about traffic apps. <laughs> you know, you get those traffic apps. I use Google Maps. Do we all use Google Maps or?
1: I think so. My fancy car has a built-in GPS,
0: but it doesn't work. Your fancy car GPS doesn't work. I mean, it's okay, but it's broken. Like it's that oh, physically yeah. broken.
1: Oh The um the my phone, the cord that connects my phone to my car is not working, but the car also has a built-in GPS that I like never use because it thinks the car's name is John Smith, I think. we talked about this well my car has
2: a built-in gps but i'm too cheap to pay for the service Mm -hmm. so i just use google
0: maps uh google maps but sometimes if
2: google maps is really like telling me a story i don't want to believe i will check apple maps Mm
0: -hmm. Maps. which
2: is usually an even worse story Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, yeah i find that if there is no traffic the map the apps work well, you'll get to where you're, you'll get to where you're supposed to be right when they say you're going to get mm-hmm. there. It's 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 really impressive. But when there's mm-hmm. traffic, they'll say like an hour and forty nine minutes, and then you'll be driving for twenty nine minutes, and you'll check again, and it'll say an hour and forty eight minutes. You'll be driving mm-hmm. for twenty more minutes.
2: Mm-hmm. That's exactly how it's been mm-hmm. the last few weeks.
0: Yeah.
1: So tonight is the night of the. Raptors game. Surprisingly, like they're not playing in Toronto, but like you we're, think we're people shift shifted
0: gears shifted very right quickly. But our... I'm
1: seeing that like you'd think it would affect traffic. You oh. think that people would like either be staying in the city to watch the game or like would have left you know I mean at different times to get home on time, but like it's not done anything to change the garbage fire that is this commute.
0: <laughs> no. It made it's made it worse. I mean, if you're in Toronto and trying to get home or trying to get somewhere during a Raptors game mm-hmm. during these finals, I mean, mm-hmm. forget about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, you, was a, there was a day I was
1: supposed to come in with Sue last week, and I was like, oh, the Raptors are playing. They've closed all the roads. I'm not going to come in. You
0: should take the train. <laughs> did you go in, Sue?
2: I did, and yeah. I took the train, yeah. and it still was ugly. Yeah.
0: Uglier. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: because I still have to get from the train station to the mm-hmm. office.
0: Great, right.
2: yes.
0: So, uh, what do you think of our podcast, Sue?
2: I think it's very interesting, and it's a way to pass the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you
1: call,
0: what do Five they call it? Five star review. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's the um, what do you call it? You're seeing how the sausage is
2: made. You're seeing all the recording equipment and the. <laughs> oh yes, yes, and for the listeners, it's really something special. I think you should request pictures, possibly a video. The bickering about uh, where the tape goes and the, where are the batteries and how does the recorder work and There's all just
0: that. Wires dangling from. <laughs> from
2: and the, the car. first world problems <laughs> of Armoral Dashes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: it's been a good Yeah. It's been a big week though.
0: It's been good a big time. week for you. Oh. It's been a very big week for you. It's been a really stressful week for me. What's been. Uh, you've sort of blown up. Yeah. You're now Indian famous.
1: Am I? I'm part of the indigenous Twitterati.
0: I think I've it's arrived. something more than that. I think you've now entered into the realm of indigenous public intellectual. Ah, uh,
2: what did you say? Something you've avoided your entire
1: life. <laughs> yeah. What? What does? Um. You said something after. So I was on the Sunday Scrum on CBC, and you were like, "Real public intellectual vibes." And one of my friends was like, "Put that on a T-shirt." <laughs> But yeah, so I've what done. happened?
0: What happened? Okay. Roll things back here, Corey. Yeah. What what has happened that has tripled your Twitter followers overnight?
1: It has not tripled my Twitter followers, but it has doubled my Twitter followers. Okay. Um I wrote a tweet. <laughs> So I, well, maybe... Whoa, 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 whoa. You just
0: wrote an article for the National Post, right? That's where it started? No, it
1: was the Washington Washington Post. Oh, what did I say? The Washington Post. You said the National Post.
0: nobody writes for the National Post. Two
1: very different uh, publications. No, so, okay. One of my
0: first publications. I know we're talking about you, but I'm just going (laughs) to... Yeah. Go on.
1: Yes. So I was, as people know, I work on policy issues related to ending violence, and so... Obviously, the national inquiry has formed like a major part of my work over the past number of years, and I've been working on you know ending violence policy since before the inquiry was called, and in, um, in Ontario specifically. So, I um, was asked by Yellowhead to write a policy brief on it, and made the journey to Ottawa to um, to participate in the uh, final presentation, and. Um, because I was there, I was also asked to write a piece for the Washington Post. And if you haven't heard that yet or haven't read it yet, it's, um, was kind of the only piece that came out in the days after the final report that was like, yeah, genocide is a thing that has happened. And it was in real contrast to the coverage that Canadian media pundits were putting out around the inquiry um, and learning that all of the media outlets in Canada are genocide deniers and and all the ensuing things that have happened with that. So I gained a little bit of like traction from that and then have had this since uh, experience of writing a tweet on um, clean water and the relationship between clean water and action on climate change. And that for some reason has had at least three times the reaction. So I've kind of had these like different experiences in the media where it's been really, it's been a weird week where it's been contrasted to each other.
0: And then you went on CBC. you went on yeah. and then well. I was on
1: CBC and did all these other things. And I'm going to be recording someone else's podcast on the weekend and, um, doing a lot of other media and stuff.
0: And don't and forget the Yellowhead Brief. You wrote the a Yellowhead Brief, which was the most casting. important, yeah, piece of media you did. It was last week.
1: Yeah, it got. It was, it was an
0: important yeah. article. It was an, a very productive, important article.
1: How did it do analytics-wise? I
0: haven't checked the analytics, but I, it was mm-hmm. up there for our. It was definitely up there. It's mm-hmm. definitely up there for our social mm-hmm. media analytics. But I, I haven't checked to see how many people actually opened the link and read the article. But I'll check. I'll check.
1: I can see that when I share the article, which is, like, everyone's about to get exposed here because you, sh- like, I will share articles or, like, quote tweet something and say, like, this is, you know, um, an article that I wrote, but then I actually get to see how many people have actually clicked the link, so, like, it's usually, like, significantly less. People will give the appearance that they're sharing mm-hmm. or they want oh, yeah, to appear absolutely. to be, absolutely. like, they're, they're um, engaged with the media, but they actually common. don't.
0: Mm-hmm. That yeah. is very common. So you've written this National Post piece. You wrote the Yellowhead brief. Washington Post. Ah.
1: (laughs) It's okay, Hayden. Everyone knows you wrote for the New York Times.
0: I did. I never actually. (laughs) I don't think I wrote for the New York Times. Did
1: you? You told me you did. No, I was interviewed by the New
0: York Times, which is not a big deal at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, No. I don't know why I keep saying National Post. I think the Washington Post and the National Post are probably very similar. Even though I gave some props to the Washington Post via Twitter today and... It was, the, it was the most progressive news, newspaper in Canada, mm-hmm. and then people like came out and was like, "What about the Winnipeg, what was it called, Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Free Press?" Winnipeg Free Press. Negan Sinclair was like, "What about the Winnipeg Free Press?" Like I don't know about the Winnipeg. I don't know if it qualifies <laughs> as a national paper, but he sure, said that because sure. he writes for them. Yeah, yes, <laughs> right. love you, Negan. Yeah. Uh, so you've got all you've got all this media attention. Yeah. And you're uh, you're blowing up. So how does it feel?
1: Um, it's been a really dehumanizing experience to be an indigenous person engaged in media over the past few weeks. So I don't even have, I don't even know what I wrote in this tweet, but I essentially went viral with like a snarky tweet to the prime minister and I've gotten over 3 million impressions on the tweet (laughs) and been shared all over the place. And like the amount of people that have been like have you heard about uh, reusable water bottles? Like I had like a person send me a picture of a reusable water bottle and was like, they're kind of expensive, but like you can buy them on Amazon.
0: So you have to tell people what the tweet was about. Can you
1: read the tweet? I'm driving. Can you? Sure.
0: But (laughs) can you tell people the gist of the tweet?
1: So Justin Trudeau made an announcement on single-use plastics and banning single-use plastics. And gave, like, this general tweet that I found to be, like, kind of the general approach that people take to responding to single-use plastics, right? Is that um, anyone who uses them or relies on them in lieu of, like, other options is necessarily someone who's either not trying, doesn't care about the environment, or that they are somehow deficient or their behavior is shameful in some way, right? There's a real shaming element to the use of single-use plastics these days. And people have been really good about calling out the ableism that's inherent with that. So like, um, you know, shaming people who, you know, shaming disabled people who might rely on plastic straws and the use that they have with that. Um, What I find interesting about um, the criticism of people who use... um, Use single use plastics for water to have access to potable water is that it kind of is not connected to the experience of First Nations people when it comes to relying on water for clean water access. And this is something that is true for my family. Um, my family lives in a very rural part of our reserve, like, we are not on the water line. Our community does ha- so. This is like my community does have a state-of-the-art water treatment plant. Um, It's only available at this point in time to about 40% of the population on the reserve. It is being expanded, but it's not being expanded to my part of the community. And that's something that's likely not going to happen. I don't live on a paved road. Um, You know, there's certain deficits that exist within my physical location where I live where I'm going to have to continue to rely on Um, bottled water access I actually in my house specifically I've chosen to not install any cistern or septic systems because I live in a heavily wooded area I would kill trees that are hundreds of years old and so I like personally inconvenience myself walk a short distance to a relative's house to use their bathroom facilities and all of that so that I don't actually end up having to kill so, He's like, massive immutable trees.
0: So you've said... So Justin Trudeau is like, Canadians mm-hmm. waste all this plastic every mm-hmm. year. We're going to ban single-use plastics. And then you said, quote, my family would have less plastic waste if we didn't rely on bottled water for fresh drinking water on mm-hmm. reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've obviously expanded on that. Yeah, but so... 50,000 yeah. people like that tweet.
1: Yeah. 50,000 people like that tweet. But you're saying
0: it's dehumanizing. You yeah. thought that it was dehumanizing. So...
1: Yeah, like, the majority of people that are interacting with it are obviously racist people. I've been told to just leave the reserve, to, um, like, have I ever heard of a Brita? The amount of people who have asked me if I know what a Brita water filter is, is astounding. I am now a Brita truther. (laughs) I have had to learn so much about the failures of Britas to, like, refute the people that are coming into my mentions to be like, um, do you ha- like look at this dumb Indian doesn't understand how to use a Brita? And okay, first of all, Britas don't filter out bacteria, they're meant to improve the taste of tap water that's already filtered, and also they create plastic waste. They are like, they are not what everyone thinks they are. So I'm sorry, whoever is anti Brita, please sponsor my. Existence because I am now a
0: one-woman anti-Brita truther. So, so what about you, Sue? Do you have uh, do you have to rely on bottled water?
2: uh yeah. So, while I'm on a paved road, unlike Courtney, Mm -hmm. um, they haven't brought the water line to our part of our road yet. They're only focusing on getting it to the schools right now, and. Even if they do eventually get water to my section of my road, we live too far off the road to make it feasible to get water delivered through the water system. So we will always be dependent on having water shipped in. So we have it trucked in Mm -hmm. into a cistern Um, because of the type of soil that we have. It's not really. And also because we have a a gypsum mine underneath my part of the community. We don't have a water table. Hmm. So we have to have cisterns in our, our little area. Um, <clears throat> but because of that and because of the clay that we have, there's a lot of complications with groundwater anyway. So um, mm-hmm. we rely on purchasing all of the water we use in our home. Um, fortunately, there are a couple of companies in the community now that offer that service, but that's mm-hmm. relatively new. Um, well, there was one company for a long time, but they recently retired. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's, um, it's definitely a challenge that we face for our drinking water. We actually do filter.
0: You got a Brita? Mm -hmm.
2: We have a Brita. We have a Mm -hmm. pure, we have it all. Um, but Mm -hmm. we also like, we trust the water that we're getting mainly because we know who's bringing it, like Mm -hmm. who we're purchasing it from. And it has higher levels of chlorine than I would prefer. But it's, um, it's, they test it regularly in terms of concerns around mm-hmm. bacteria. So we do drink from the tap, but for, for taste purposes, we will filter. Mm-hmm. Um, we limit the amount of bottled water that we purchase, but sometimes it's just <clears throat> that you have to. Mm-hmm. The other thing about living on a cistern is that sometimes you run out of water mm-hmm. when you didn't expect it. Mm-hmm. And you can't always get um a load of water delivered immediately. So Mm -hmm. you actually kind of have to have some bottled water around just for those kinds of purposes. Mm -hmm. And on occasion, um, you know, I've got young kids. So because of concerns around bacteria, you still have to have some like definitely clean water to make Mm -hmm. sure that if you have to do medicines or something.
1: Mm -hmm. Ours is a bit different. So my dad actually trucks our water for us, for our family. We personally as our family I have our own small like massive water tank where my dad will bring in water that we have both a well and a cistern and so fill those up but again like we're we live in a different part of the community we're closer to the river we have swamp water like we our water that comes in through the wells it has a smell to it it's not something that you would want to drink filtering it doesn't get rid of the smell to the water um, the only thing that really does keep the water out is like when you're showering in it, you're using soaps <laughs> and when you're using it for laundry, it does, you know, it uh, takes the smells out of it. And it's not like bad, but like, I I think I'm especially sensitive to it because I've lived with this my entire life. Um, but it's, um, we also bring in, um, one of the things my dad does is he will go and refill plastic water bottles. So we use them multiple times, but at the same time, plastic degrades over time. So it's not something you want to like do regularly because again, the plastic will break down and you'll get more particles into the drinking water that you're using. So we do have to dispose of plastic. And I'm not saying that like, which is also a funny thing about the tweet is that like we already do everything we can to like limit the use of plastic to do that, but we would still use less if we didn't have to rely on it, right? It's not like the only water we drink and cook with is like the small bottles of water and we're going out of our way to create massive amounts of plastic waste. It's just like, this is a situation where this is going to be our reality for the foreseeable future. And there's no systemic way for us to be able to be able to operate outside of this kind of situation. But what I found with like, the reactions I was getting to the tweet is just this blanket assumption and the obviously like racist, racist assumption that the lived experience that I have was somehow deficient or that we weren't already doing everything that we could. There was all these people making all these assumptions that like this is something we hadn't researched, that we didn't understand, that this wasn't a situation that we already knew all the problems and barriers to and therefore the solutions to it. It was mm-hmm. always just like...
0: You dumb Indians. Yeah. It's like, it's like people in the north when they're just told to build a greenhouse to grow yeah. fresh food, right? Like, it, yeah. it costs $6 for a head of lettuce. It's like, just build a greenhouse and grow the lettuce. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, oh, you don't think that has been attempted mm-hmm. before? So, yeah, it definitely indicates that... Uh, uh, we're We're really stuck in traffic right now. That's yeah. what's happening. Um Yeah, wow, this is bad. It's like a Raptors game is happening (laughs) today. So, that was uh, dehumanization. On the one hand, you had all these people Mm -hmm. retweet your tweet and Mm -hmm. like your tweet, and then on the other hand, you had all these dehumanizing
1: comments. (sighs) Yeah, I had all these dehumanizing comments, had this very dehumanizing experience, and then I tried to, like, engage with some people around it or, like, you know, some of the blatantly obvious things, like... I was obviously like trying to reply to people, but the my main message to a lot of people was just like you're operating from a place where you're making all of these racist assumptions about me and like that's just the reality of this. And I had like the typical responses that you often get when you're having these types of conversations with settler people where they're like you should appreciate that I'm trying. Why can't you just educate me? You're shaming me. And that's not productive. So I got into like a bunch of those conversations as well. I personally think people that are operating from a place of ignorance that go out of their way to be hurtful to other people and realize they're doing that maybe should feel a little bit of shame. That is kind of a shameful thing to do. Going around and approaching strangers and being shitty to them like that's not a good thing people should be doing with their time. But
0: You're not on Twitter, eh, Sue?
1: I am not. <laughs> I do send you a lot of screenshots, though, of the happenings of Twitter. You do, and
2: I appreciate <laughs> that. To date, um, I need my social media savvy friends to keep me in touch with the real world.
0: Yeah, but you're not. You're not going to join Twitter. I am not. No, <laughs> it can be a toxic place. Mm-hmm. It can be a toxic place. There's a lot of. There's a lot of. There's a lot of bad things that mm-hmm. happen on social media. Yeah,
2: I do Facebook, so I see some of the ugly, but it's kind of like the light version, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. Because
2: it's also only people probably that you know. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. True. Speaking of three times my Twitter followers, though, that's where you're at. Even though I've doubled my followers, you already have three times as many followers as I do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have pulled back from Twitter a lot in the last few months um, because it has been such a toxic place for me. But, yeah, I have 18,000 something 19,000 Twitter followers I don't know how many Twitter followers I should do something useful with mm-hmm. That power
2: So how many of those followers are Possibly planning lawsuits against you
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yes Multiple multiple. I don't even know how many of them there are Um Yeah so I'm going to keep, keep a low profile on Twitter. This is the other
1: thing too Before all this happened I felt like I had like A good thing going on Twitter where I had like All the native people that I liked on Twitter were following me, interacting with them. You know, there's not many. So, like, I was at, like, 3,000 followers, having a lot of fun. And I've gotten, like, 2,000 followers. And, like, they're mostly non-indigenous people. And so Mm -hmm. now I'm like, oh, frick. And they're, like, doing all these things that are terrible where they're, like... I'll tweet something about, like... One of my friends messaged me and was telling me about all of the, like, thirst, trappy DMs she's getting... And I was like, mine is just white women sending me pictures of water bottles and asking if I know what they are. So,
0: like, <laughs> but, whoa, <laughs> and so, didn't a bunch of white women ask you if you wanted some money because... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah.
1: For- so, some person messaged me and was like, I want to send you some money for all the labor you've been doing. And I was like conflicted about this. You probably saw it on my Instagram or my Facebook where I was like do I accept this person's money? It's I've never done this before. It feels weird. I have to like set up a PayPal or whatever. And so people talked me into it and I went back to be like sure I set up a PayPal to this woman but I didn't respond
2: fast enough and she blocked me.
0: (laughs) Well, oh, that is some perhaps she
2: was offering money to someone else and made it in an error to you. <laughs> she would have had to message me. There's like no way she would. Yeah. So I, <laughs> that was super funny,
1: but I did add it to my Facebook or my Twitter. And so people did send me some money.
0: That's wild.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Just like settler guilt money.
0: Well, so there's, there's this interesting <laughs> dynamic that happens on social media, dehumanizing on the one hand, mm-hmm. uh, profitable on the other. Mm-hmm. mildly or there's the lawsuits as well so that's Mm -hmm. yeah um but what about traditional media so you talked about your experience with a viral tweet Mm -hmm. but what's been the response to the Washington Post and CBC uh interviews
1: the CBC interview was very good um The experience of working with, like, primarily non-Indigenous editors and people who are unfamiliar to that, like, that's a weird process that I hadn't really gone through. I mean, uh, the only real pieces that I've written that have been, like, released have been through Yellowhead, and they've been edited by either you or Shiri Pasternak. So you guys obviously have an understanding of, like, the audience, but also the subject matter. And so that's a very constructive process for me and I appreciate the process that you and I would go through to like you know bring the piece around the national mm-hmm. action plan and stuff to light. Like, like that's a good, that's fun and enjoyable to me. Mm-hmm. Um but then I did this piece for the Washington Post and it was a more like educational experience on my part. They were already willing to like publish what I was writing and they were generally supportive of it, but they were definitely like some of the statements that I had made about like enfranchisement or you know the direct things native people had gone through they were very much like we need citations for these even though it was already an opinion piece even though I'm already recognized as having this experience and this expertise it was they said for all the pieces like we need to see evidence of this if we're going to publish this and I was like listen you've asked me to write about a 1200 page report that talks about this I was like pick any page in this report, and it will speak to this experience. You've already linked to it twice in this article. Like, let's... Like, what is the what is the piece... Like, what is the point here? And so, um, I also went through, like, a number of processes in the editing where it was... Um, because I knew I was writing these two pieces, he, you and I had a conversation where it was, like, clearly one of them and the Yellowhead audience... Is more receptive to a more technical piece versus like a more generalized audience that just needs these pieces more explained to them in a different way so um that was where like yes we need to like validate this connection between like settler colonialism and genocide but also understanding the purposes of genocide which is the control over land and resources that there's a reason why Canada has undertaken this genocide and why the output of it is violence against women, and it's to have control over land, water, and resources, in the Canadian, like in what is now called Canada. Mm-hmm. So like that was like that piece, and so yeah, it was a good it was yes. a good
0: piece. But did you find that there was? I mean, mm-hmm. did you find that there was a reaction, a response? Uh, did anybody read the Washington Post <laughs> the um, article?
1: I had um, one person tell me. That I was writing a hit piece on Canada. Um, But everything was pretty good. There was Mm. a really good... And that's the thing, too, that was, like, been pretty jarring about this entire experience. Is that, like, I had expected... um, I had expected that... This, like, visceral racist reaction to the stuff I was writing about missing and murdered women. Not a shit post to the prime minister. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I had, and we had talked about this, you know, like being like, cause I had written these two very public articles or had gone on CBC and people were very conscientious about it to me. A lot of people that I know who are non-indigenous, who know my work, they were checking in with me daily and being like, are you okay? I had friends reach out to me and be like, I want to buy you, you know, I want to buy you lunch, want to go through these, you know, things and support you because you know you're being public about missing and murdered women, but, like, I never got a backlash from it, but the thing about water did get the
0: backlash. Right. What do you think about this debate, uh, and Sue, I don't know if you were paying attention to this debate or not, because or it, sort of, it sort of played out both in mainstream media, but then also in social media, where... You know, the Globe and Mail had this genocide denial piece uh, uh, written by some white woman. I don't know who it was. And then they wrote an editorial saying, you know, we shouldn't use the word genocide. Um, and then, you know, Alicia Elliott came out and said, I, I'm, ne- I'm never going to write for the Globe and Mail again. I think that's what she said. Is that what she said? She's never yeah. going to write for the Globe again. Yeah. So and she then, had said that,
1: like, she has she was not she was choosing not to write with the work with the Globe in the future again.
0: And then CBC also published an author who also questioned the use of mm-hmm. the term genocide as applied to uh, violence mm-hmm. against Indigenous women uh, and queer two spirit people and girls. And I think did Jesse Wente leave CBC or over that? He said it
1: makes him question why he's working for the organization like it really caused him pause but then later he tweeted out that like the cbc had reached out to him and they were supportive and that he was basically reaffirmed at this position that he was in um one of the other things too was that like the globe was the one even though a lot of people published like genocide denial pieces a lot of people were really critical of the globe and i think the globe was the first uh, newspaper that started reach out to people to be like, do you want to write a response? Do you want to write a response? And so several people were very, very vocal about screenshotting the um, requests they had gotten from the globe. And basically were saying like, we're not going to cover your ass for you. Mm-hmm. we're not going to come and do this. We're not going to come and try and save your Indigenous readership. Don't ask me to do this. So there was a couple of different, um, especially young Indigenous people, that were like, we're not going to write for you, and we're w- w- or we're not going to write this piece
0: for you. Right. This has sort of a- happened in the academic world, too. Right, Sue? When, uh, I think mm-hmm. it was Queens, McGill, McGill Queens. or McGill-Queens Press, mm-hmm. they published... Uh, Tom yeah. Flanagan and then they published uh, Francis and Widowson mm-hmm. uh, in fact I think they specialize in publishing white Indian experts uh, mm-hmm. that write racist things and somehow get it through oddly enough though they do have process. some some good <laughs> indigenous really scholars do they?
2: they do I don't know how because <laughs> um, yeah like for example like who uh,
0: I w- Alan Downey was that Queensville <laughs> I
2: think it was actually yeah uh, um, so i personally would not publish with mcgill queens
0: right so there was an academic boycott there was a boycott by indigenous academics that they would not publish through that that publication because they supported these particular authors for a long time yes um
2: and yeah so like i've certainly taken that position not that i have tons of opportunities to be publishing you know 20 books at a time but i've taken that position um i don't think i've bought a book from McGill-Queens. I certainly haven't bought a new one from McGill-Queens. I may own some that were used somewhere in my collection. Um, In Haudenosaunee studies, a a lot of us have taken that position with Syracuse University Press. Even though their more recent publications have definitely been more um, authentic in terms of their representation of our communities. They published um, the canon of Iroquois studies that Many of us love to hate, mm-hmm. and um, all you know, all of us who went through mm-hmm. the PhD process had to write extensive lit reviews about why those things are so awful. And I've said that I would never publish with Syracuse University Press until they recant all mm-hmm. of that awful stuff that they published, which is now decades ago, but um, I'm still, I've taken that position. Right. So, yeah, definitely, it's a bit easier for those of us who are primarily academic writers, to take those kinds of positions. We have a chance to, to know what's coming out from those presses.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We also have a lot, well, a fair number of alternatives. Um, I think for those of you who work more in the active sort of journalist media areas, it's, it's a lot harder and a lot more nuanced right.
0: yeah. than what
2: we deal with in the academic publishing.
0: For, I mentioned the National Post which I have written for in the past but I think I wrote for them in 2007 2008 and then it was very clear the trajectory of their writing and the editorial line that um indigenous people are only really valuable as partners in resource development that I stopped writing for them and haven't written for them since in fact I don't even get I don't give interviews to to post media based on that But I have also had really bad experiences with the globe. You know, my first op-ed, my very Mm -hmm. first op-ed was with the Toronto Sun.
1: Nice. (laughs)
0: Like, maybe the worst publication when it comes to uh, Indigenous issues. And that was Mm -hmm. where my first op-ed was. Mm -hmm. Under a pen name. Because I was working for the government at the time. And then wrote an op-ed criticizing Mm -hmm. the government. Mm-hmm. But I did write for the National Post and I stopped writing for them. And then the Globe and Mail has been complicated because I've written over two dozen articles for the Globe and Mail. Mm-hmm. And they are they mm-hmm. are really fantastic when it comes to editing. They're light editors. Mm-hmm. They let me take my mm-hmm. own position, no problem. But mm-hmm. they do have a hawkish editorial board and they seem to have had a very aggressive editorial board on Indigenous issues for a long time. And... Um, you know, I've had bad experiences with editors. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece uh, that referenced the murder of, of Colton Bushy. And they told me, you know, the lawyers won't approve using this language of, of murder. Mm-hmm. And so that was the newspaper, that's supposed to be my newspaper, that I mm-hmm. work that I work with and have worked with mm-hmm. for years, deciding not to stand behind me mm-hmm. and, and defend me mm-hmm. and support me and instead, you know, fear potential mm-hmm. lawsuits from from anyone so I've had that that's been a very complicated relationship Mm -hmm. for me but I'm I I, I don't know why I can't put myself completely behind this this boycott of the globe because I feel like they're in a position where they both hold up they hold up problematic authors but they also hold up really critical voices and I think I've been seeing it less as a platform issue you know it's like Mm -hmm. a it's like a tool that we can exploit um, and even when they publish really problematic people, we can go on the defensive and and just drag them and continue to push a particular narrative, like we did with uh, McGo- McGill Queens, maybe to a lesser extent. Um, but I'm not entirely sure I'm willing just to walk away from it.
1: I think, yeah, I think it's different for different people that have the ability to not pursue every writing opportunity because they need the financial security of it or they're freelancers and they're relying on this type of income. They don't have the ability to, um, boycott in the same way or not participate. And so I don't really, you know, I more so judge the content of someone's work than necessarily where they're choosing to write because at a certain point too, right? there's not a lot of that freedom within like capitalism, etc So the person next to us is jamming. I wonder if that's gonna like show up Make in, it the, in the podcast. yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't know how I feel about this. I obviously support Alicia and her decision, and I you mm-hmm. know support her, and I also acknowledge the people that put together GoFundMe for writers who did choose not to publish and therefore lost out on income because of it to be able to send them you know financial support i'm a big believer in like you know under capitalism the one way that you can make a big difference in a lot of people's lives is just straight up giving them cash so they have the freedom to decide what they're doing on it and not like caveat it in a certain way but you know it's sort of like
0: Mm -hmm. it's sort of like twitter like do you Mm -hmm. stay on twitter and i guess people have made this decision too Mm -hmm. twitter is a platform Mm. there's amazing people on that platform but also really awful violent people Mm -hmm. and do you seed it you know do you just leave and say okay i can't be a part of this platform anymore support this organization because they let Mm -hmm. fascists and neo-nazis spew their hate on it Um, but the consequence Mm -hmm. of that is you just give them the platform Mm -hmm. and that's sort of like the globe right or any other national newspaper if you if you vacate that space, it's it is different than as mm-hmm. Sue said, it is different than than the academic world. If you if you seed that space, mm-hmm. then the voices that are left are the Tom Flanagans and Maggie Wenties of the world.
1: Not Maggie Wenty, Margaret Wente. Ah. Maggie's the good one.
0: This traffic is doing <laughs> strange things to my brains. <laughs> My brains. Yeah,
2: your brains. Uh, And Alan Downey's book is with UBC Press. UBC Press.
0: (laughs) He just worked for McGill. Sorry, Alan Downey. That's right. There's the confusion.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things, too, that I try to reflect on is the idea that, like, in making a lot of decisions or occupying spaces, I think about the opportunity and what it represents. And for so long, my work has centered around ending violence but also making women safer and i believe wholeheartedly in pursuing every opportunity we have that's going to potentially contribute to making indigenous women safer and so that has led to a lot of different spaces and a lot of different conversations um, around that happening but um, you know from a policy perspective you know or a policy advising stance that can be a very controversial thing to do, you know. Um, whether there are limits to that, certainly, like some organizations use that argument to accept money from companies that are doing resource extraction, and um, you know, are you then ultimately like feeding into the systems that lead to the victimization of Indigenous women? It's a lot of a lot of like, I guess, case by case or sure. nuanced. Sure instances where you know that position that I've taken might not be the right approach
0: I think I mean for me I've always taken the position that writing for the mainstream can have a greater impact than say writing academic articles and maybe Sue you disagree with me on this but you know I can spend all my time and energy writing an academic article that is rigorous and ethical and Peer-reviewed that thirteen people might read, or I can put my energy into writing persuasive, punchy uh, uh, pieces that maybe you know ten thousand people might read, or fifteen thousand people might read. And then there's a question about the impact that you're making, whether it's ending violence mm-hmm. or um, or land rights or or whatever.
2: Well, we need people who are doing both, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so we can't all do all of it so it's about finding where people have strengths and opportunities and capitalizing on it right um, yep. the reality is that if you are a faculty member at a research university you have to have certain amounts um, certain types of outputs that are the journal art- articles that are the books published by scholarly presses mm-hmm. um, but I agree with you that actually the the, the Creative use of the press is a very valuable tool to further um, our various causes, right, that are are about liberating our people, that are about securing a a better future for our children.
0: Most of your interventions are in the academic... But also a lot of your stuff is very accessible and you do a lot of community presentations and community writing or writing for those audiences. But do you feel the same sort of, get the same sort of reactions in the academic world that Courtney's describing? I mean, you, your book won an award The Clay were made of.
2: So, no, definitely not. Um, although <laughs> it depends on where you're at. It depends on, like, I think that you get those kinds of reactions in some classrooms, Um, Particularly, I think about, you know, some of our colleagues who are at institutions that have mandatory Indigenous Studies courses, for example. And I think they do get some of those reactions. They're slightly tempered because there's a power dynamic involved when you've got an Indigenous prof um, and students, right? Regardless of what the ethnicity of the students may be, there is a power dynamic that's at play there. Um, But you definitely do hear about some of the more hostile kinds of reactions um, that come often in those settings where there's mandatory courses sometimes in other ones, but it's most commonly in the mandatory situations. Um, But yeah, it's, it's definitely a different environment. It's also, again, in most cases within the universities, we're dealing with what's has, what by nature is going to be a longer term relationship. And there's also often a face-to-face component, um, depending, you know, unless you're teaching online. But even then, there's still a certain amount of accountability that is completely lacking, right, in terms mm-hmm. of mainstream media and particularly in social media. Yeah.
0: Yes, definitely. But you've never got a piece of hate mail for, nobody has written you and said, your book vilifies white people.
2: no. Not not quite to that extent. I have had some folks who've tried to engage and question um, sort of why my book maybe is categorized in certain ways. So, for example, <clears throat> it was shortlisted for the McDonald Prize, the Sir John A. McDonald Prize in Canadian history. And when I got notice of that, I was really baffled. I laughed was my first <laughs> reaction, actually. <laughs> But then I had like several sleepless nights about it. And um, I couldn't quite place why I was so upset about it and and what exactly I was upset about. And then one night about 3 a.m. I woke up and realized, oh, it's because they're calling it Canadian history. And that's what I was so pissed off about because I'm like, this isn't their history. It's about them. It's about their interactions with us and basically the ways that they tried to interfere in the governing of our community, but when I realized they were claiming it as Canadian history, that was the part that actually was what was most annoying about it. Um, so oddly enough, it's it hasn't been sort of the hate mail kind of things that have been the most troubling for me. It's been the um, the claiming of information right. as belonging to somebody other than who I intended it to belong to.
0: Sort of like an appropriation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And even in, in many cases by really well-intentioned people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who were trying to to give respect. And also trying to understand what the messages were, right? Um, but I guess sometimes even good news isn't always good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things,
1: I don't know. If people haven't read Sue's book, they should read Sue's book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good book. Especially if you're headed to If you're hidden in you should be reading Sue's book. It's the people that I know who have read it, as well as myself, it's just transformational in how you view yourself and our place within history. And so it's really, really important. It's a really important piece of work. And so I I can see how people, like, you're obviously, like, a very rigorous researcher, but also just, like, there's so much humanity and beauty in the way that you write and present people that it's hard to, like, not see that in the way it comes forward. So, yeah, there's been some really good books that have come out and that's a different you know type of experience as well right like even alicia elliott's book right like those are things that the, the experience that people have reading books is more immersive than sitting on the toilet and reading mm. the articles that yeah i've written so like well, also it's a different kind of thing there's right? a
0: different engagement with yeah. canadians too so mm-hmm. we're talking about our our mm-hmm. our work as you know mm-hmm. public indians or whatever but the, you write an 800-word or 700-word article, often Canadians will just read the title. <laughs> They're not going to write a book. <laughs> they might just read the title and see yeah. that it has the word genocide in it and then just go off the handle without doing yeah. any actual uh, serious mm-hmm. or meaningful engagement with anything that you've, you've written. I mean, it's that, that accessibility is, mm-hmm. is so, in fact, superficial in many ways.
1: Which is also funny because, like, as a writer, you often don't get a chance to even have a say in what the title of the article is. That's true, yeah. (laughs) Like, I didn't get to title my
0: piece. No, the editor most often chooses that, yeah. Yeah, so different Mm -hmm. layers of engagement Mm -hmm. with the media. Mm -hmm. Now, we are... We've moved
1: ten feet.
0: We we started (laughs) at Girard and... For those who know Toronto geography, we started at Gerard and Jarvis, and we've made it to King and <laughs> Jarvis, which is like four city blocks.
1: Yep, it's been what, an hour? 45 <laughs> minutes. This is like, I feel like this is a good place to wrap the podcast <sighs> and then just. Yell about the traffic Get out of the car Yeah You could walk home faster than this Yeah
0: I think that the podcast is ending Because I'm getting out of the car And finding a train To get on I'm sorry I'm sorry Courtney I'm sorry Sue Yeah
1: I'm leaving Good luck (laughs) This is my dream come true Kicking you out of the podcast car
0: Okay Voluntarily leaving (laughs) Final thoughts Hmm.
2: Nope We'll cut that part. Take public transit. <laughs> Take yeah. public transit. Okay. Yeah. This has been brought to you by the GTC? Yeah. <laughs> Not really, because they're
1: stuck too. <laughs> You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've
0: been driving in my Indian
1: car to the
2: pound of the wheel. My brain, my dash.